0: More often than not, when we speak of faith, uh, we tend to speak of it as if it's a list of things that we believe about God. But faith in the scriptures is something a little more complex, and actually a little more interactive than that. It's more accurately rendered faithfulness because it's a state of living in relationship with God receiving God's faithfulness to us and responding with faithfulness toward God as we would in any relationship. And in this series of sermons that I started last week, we're looking at some Psalms that really describe what faithfulness looks like and what it looks like, especially in those times when we're not sure God is present where we're not sure that God is listening, where it seems perhaps that God is silent. The Psalms do not step back from prayer in the midst of those times. In fact, they fully embrace it. And for whatever reason, they choose to continue to engage even with this apparently silent God that they're not sure is there. And nine of the psalms, nine of the 11 psalms we're looking at are really psalms that fit into that category of psalms that speak to what it means to be faithful in a time where it's not clear that God is present. At a time where it's not clear where that God is acting, it's at a time where it maybe feels like God is indifferent to our concerns. And those nine psalms, psalms 9 through 17 are bracketed by two other psalms which are in some ways bookends that hold the whole collection together psalm 8 is a psalm that gives us one of the foundations of god's faithfulness to us our creation god's creation of us and psalm 18 Is another one of those bookends another one of those foundations of faithfulness those depictions of what it means for god to be faithful to us and that is god's redemption of us god's willingness to pull us up from the miry bog and the pit and to set our feet on the broad and and open space so last week we looked at psalm 8 the first of those bookends and today we start in on those nine psalms that are kind of of the same sort of organization, which is describing an act of faithfulness and prayer in the midst of what seems like God's silence. And and the way in which gratitude today in Psalm 9 is an expression of that faithfulness. That gratitude is something that we experience when God is faithful to us and we receive that gift of faithfulness. And in expressing it back, we express our faithfulness to God and our choice to remain in relationship with him. And so we want to look at Psalm 9 this morning, which I think is about how gratitude is an expression of faithfulness. And it's an invitation for us to choose gratitude. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will tell of all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turned back, they stumbled and perished before you. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemies have vanished in everlasting ruins. Their cities you have rooted out, the very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. God has established his throne for judgment. He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with equity. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord, who dwells in Zion. Declare his deeds among the peoples, for he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See what I suffer from those who hate me. You are the one who lifts me up from the gates of death, so that I may recount all your praises. And in the gates of daughter Zion, rejoice in your deliverance. The nations have sunk in the pit they have made. In the net that they hid has their own foot been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall depart to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the poor perish forever. Rise up, O Lord. Do not let mortals prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are only human. Let's pray. Lord, help us to enter into both the gentleness, and the militancy of this Psalm. Help us to sit in that place of humility, recognizing that we are not God, but that you are God. And that frees us to let go of our death grip on things that we cannot control. Lord, lead us to that place where we are grateful for what you have done and grateful for what you will do as we might sit in that place in between those two things and wonder where you are. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So in these days, when it seems like everything under the sun somehow gets politicized, the word faith is in my mind, one of the greatest casualties Of that context. Faith in this context becomes a list of things, a list of things that one might believe about God and about what God needs us to be and to do. Faith in this context becomes very, very personal. My faith is the way it's usually talked about, like a treasure that I put into a box and Need to fight for and protect and somehow keep sealed off from the wiles of this world. It's kind of a fragile thing when it's talked about in this way. It's a very, clearly a very brittle thing. And so it needs to be guarded when we talk about it in that way. It needs to be fought for. It needs to be held on to with an anxious vigilance. And it's almost as if the God who is the object of our faith in this context is brittle or testy and needs our protection. And when this happens, our faith becomes merely a religion. It becomes merely a matter of keeping the rules that this brittle God needs us to keep and maybe even a matter of making sure that everyone around us keeps these rules as well. And the biggest casualty in all of this is that what gets lost in this view of faith is the thing that faith is really about, which is a relationship a relationship with a living one in whom we're supposed to have faith. And this is why I love the Sermon on the Mount. Because the Sermon on the Mount is addressed to the religious in order to remind them what faith actually is, that faith is a matter of living in the world faithfully and trusting the one on whom and in whom our faith is based i love the sermon on the mount because jesus calls the merely religious back into relationship what he does in the sermon on the mount is he rescues faith and restores its sense of faithfulness and our part in living and acting out A living, breathing, ongoing, eternal relationship with the one who made us for himself and the one for whom our hearts are restless until they rest in him. I think the thesis of the Sermon on the Mount, and I don't know how many people agree with me or don't agree with me on this, but I think the thesis of the Sermon on the Mount is in verses 17 through 20 of chapter 5 where Jesus, after giving the Beatitudes, after calling us the salt of the earth and the light of the world says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. Unless your righteousness, your faithfulness, your faith, Exceeds that of the most religious, those who are supposedly the most righteous, the scribes and the Pharisees, the best rule keepers, the best knowers of the rules. Unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you won't have anything to do with God. What does he mean? Well, I think what he's saying is incredibly freeing. And as we go on with that, he occasions a crisis in one sense, but he also basically says, don't major on the minor things. He says, unless your faithfulness is to relationship with God, rather than mere duty and obedience to your particular list of what you think God's rules are, you will not have what God created you to have. You will not live in the space that God made for you in his heart because you'll be too worried about trying to impress him. And then Jesus gives five illustrations of the absurdity of thinking that faith is more about rules than about relationships five wonderful illustrations that are filled with all sorts of exaggeration and hyperbole and are almost humorous, if you look at them long enough, but five illustrations of how faith can become more about rules than relationship if you don't center first on the relationship. And he says five times, You have heard it said, such and such, but I say to you this. You have heard it said you shall not commit murder, but I say to you, if you curse your brother in your heart, you have committed murder. You have heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, if you lust in your heart for another, then you have committed adultery. He ups the ante each time. And it's especially that adultery one where he uses hyperbole uh, most profoundly. He says, so pluck out your eye. Get rid of that stuff that causes you to lust because the problem is your lust. So stop lusting. How good are we at that? And I dare say, the sense of sight would not eradicate it. Jesus is saying something about what's possible in relationship with God and what we actually hold off when we think the rule is more important than the relationship. You can follow the rules is what he's saying, but can you transform your mind and your heart? Paul says it well when he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Jeremiah says it well as well when he says, The ultimate goal of God is to write the law on our hearts. The ultimate goal of God is our own transformation by his spirit to be transformed rather than merely conformed to a set of rules, to have those rules literally written on our hearts so that we operate out of them because we're in touch in relationship with the author of them, our God. We're faithful to God and all our relationships in the same way that God is faithful to us. That's what Jesus is talking about. And that requires something bigger than merely adherence to the rules. And I think one of the signs of that renewal is gratitude. It's apprehending the truth that we have been embraced by God and giving thanks. Giving thanks even in moments when we do not feel the embrace of God. And Psalm 9 is a picture of that. Psalm 9 is just a series of reflections on what can I hold on to during this time that I don't feel held by you, God. And he chooses gratitude. He chooses relationship with and faithfulness to God in times where present circumstances give little evidence of it being a good choice. He chooses to give thanks with his whole heart because he knows that what God has done and is therefore confident about what God will do. It's kind of like a back and forth between, if you're to use a grammatical illustration, it's a back and forth between past perfect tense, you have God in the past, and future tense, you will in the future. And so he begins in verses 1 through 6, I will give thanks because you have done these things. I will give thanks. I will tell. I will be glad. I will sing with my whole heart. My entire being will be about gratitude. Why? Because of what you have done. Because you have loved me. You have maintained that relationship. You have sat on the throne. You have rebuked the nations. You have blotted out evil. So I will give thanks. Because of what you have done in the past, I will give thanks in this present moment because you have shown me who you are and I'll put my weight down there irrespective of what my present circumstances are. I'll be faithful and give thanks because you have been faithful. It's I will be faithful and give thanks because you have been faithful. And then in addition, I will give thanks and trust that you are faithful because I can trust that you will put things right in the future. So it's that combination of what has happened in the past, the confidence that builds about what will happen in the future, that the old story of trust And only human powers is a story that has been proven to be wrong more than once. And it will work itself out again. And the limits of that power that now oppress me will not have the last word. The nations have sunk in the pit that they have dug for others. The Psalms love that image of people working to trap others and then falling into their own pit that they dig to trap others that the wicked will again be snared by the net that they have set to snare others and that therefore the needy shall not always be forgotten and righteousness will work itself out and then there's a petition in the last two verses where the the psalmist says this, Rise up, O Lord. Do not let mortals prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are only human. Rise up, O God. Rise up. You act. Do something. Show the world what I already know to be true. Show the world the limits of human power. This psalm, like the others that we will see in this series, is a psalm that's written for the middle, written for that liminal space, written for the in-between times where we know something that has happened and we trust something that will happen, but in the moment, we're not so sure just where God is. It's a psalm for the middle between what God has done and what God will do. And that's a very familiar place in our walk of faith. I would say too familiar. And we've all experienced it. And maybe even we experience it every day. It's a very familiar place in the way of faith. And what gives birth to gratitude in this middle place is bringing together memory and expectation. What gives birth to gratitude is the big picture of relationship. There's a poster that that hangs in my office that was done by Sister Corita. It's a butterfly, the image of a butterfly, very simple like all of her works were. She was a graphic artist, a nun in California in in the 60s and produced several different posters But she quotes from a French theologian named Gabriel or Gabriel Marcel. And the the quotation that is paired with this image of a butterfly is hope is the memory of the future. It puts together the past and the expectation, the past perfect of what God has done and the future hope of what God will do. We know that a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. That's why the butterfly is there. And we live in between those two realities often, the gestating cocoon pupa and, and the full-fledged adult butterfly. That's what's happening when, not to get too biological here, but the, the larva is out crawling around. The cocoon is just, they're kind of in a seemingly dead state in the middle and the butterfly comes out. It's, it's this continued experience of knowing what God has done in the past will work itself out into a ex- similar expression in the future. So hope is the memory of the future. And it's a way of pointing us to the prayer of Psalm 9. I remember what you have done. I know who you are, therefore, and I will trust in what you will do. So for now, for now, O God, I'll choose to give thanks to you with my whole heart. I'll choose to remain faithful. Let's pray. Help us to notice you in those places where we otherwise may not, O God. And so aid us in that ability to choose faithfulness and to choose gratitude, especially in those moments where we're not sure where you are. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love every single day, and we will live that day in thanks and praise. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.